one of the ways in which you're able to see what a certain culture values is by looking at the things that the people in that culture celebrate or remember or commemorate. So think of the UK, for example. One of the biggest celebrations we have together is that of Christmas. What do our celebrations of Christmas tell you about the things that the people in this nation value and desire and prioritise? Or similarly, you might think of the remembrance services that we hold each November, commemorating the UK's involvement in various wars, especially the world wars, but other wars worldwide. What does our involvement in those commemoration services tell you about what we prioritise as a nation? What are we proud of about our involvement in those wars? What were our priorities that led to us getting involved? You can see something of what we prioritise by looking at what we commemorate. Now what about Christianity? When people look at Christians, what would they see us commemorating? And what would they deduce, therefore, that we prioritise? Actually, there is one commemoration that the Bible instructs us to keep as Christians. That is what is sometimes called the Lord's Supper, sometimes called Communion, sometimes called the Eucharist. It's given various names in different denominations and throughout history, but they all mean or refer to a similar thing, the same thing. It's that meal that is prefigured in Luke 22, a meal that includes bread and wine taken as a remembrance of Jesus. Why has Jesus instructed us to have this commemoration? What priorities is he teaching us to hold by causing us to remember him in this way? That's what I want to think about this evening. What is the Lord's Supper all about and what priorities does it convey to us as Christians? Now, before we dive into Luke 22, we're going to have to do a little bit of background work. Because Luke chapter 22 verse 1 begins, the very first words begin by telling you it was the time of the Passover festival. We're not going to understand the rest of Luke 22 unless we understand what this Passover was. And so that's why we read Exodus chapter 12 earlier. The story so far, if you're not familiar with it by the time you get to Exodus 12, is, well, God has made quite a big promise to a man called Abraham. That promise was that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation. A nation that belongs to God. A nation through which God would do some amazing things. Now, by the time you get to the book of Exodus, Abraham's descendants are not a great nation. They're numerous, but they've become slaves in Egypt. And so God is working out a plan to rescue that people from their slavery in Egypt. He's chosen Moses and he's sent Moses to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And, and Moses has told Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh has said no. And so God has sent plagues to Pharaoh, warnings, showing God's power. And warning Pharaoh of the consequences that might be coming his way if he continues to reject God's request. Nine plagues. And then the tenth plague really is no plague at all. 
The tenth plague is more of a judgment. In fact, God describes it as a judgment. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. God says that the tenth plague, that this last event, will be an act of judgment against the gods of Egypt. However, God's judgment against the gods of Egypt means that, yes, the Egyptians are susceptible to that act of judgment, but also God's people, the Israelites, are not immune. Later in the Bible, we read that when the Israelites were in Egypt, they they got mixed up in all the, the, the types of idol worship that the Egyptians were involved with. And so God's people are susceptible to this act of judgment that is coming. Also, God says that this Uh, This act of judgment will be a means by which he distinguishes between those who are in Egypt and those who are really of Israel. And so what God does is he provides a way of escape from this judgment. And he gives this to Moses so it can be passed on to the Israelites. And that way of escape is the, the details of the Passover meal that we read about. Take a lamb that would suit the the size of your household unit. We know all about sticking in household units, don't we? Choose a lamb that would suit a, a group of people that size. Roast it and eat it together. Take the blood of the lamb, once it's been slaughtered, and paint it on the doorposts of your houses. That night, the blood of the lamb will save God's people from God's final act of judgment. That night, the blood of the Lamb will save God's people from God's final act of judgment. That's what's going on at the Passover. And when Moses gives this instruction to the people, he's careful to tell them, look, this isn't just something that we're going to do this day, this year. This is going to be a lasting commemoration. This is something that's going to be repeated year upon year upon year throughout Israel's history. And by the time we get to Luke 22 you find that that's exactly what's happening. Jews from around the world are gathering to celebrate the Passover meal together, to remember that time when God brought his people out of Egypt. Now, Luke really wants you to to realise that it's a Passover, not just for the sake of grounding yourself in the calendar as you read through his gospel. Luke is saying, actually, there's some significance to this fact that it's the Passover. Six times in 15 verses, Luke tells us, make note, it was the Passover that these events were happening. And Jesus as well also is eager to act on this significant day. He makes special preparations to ensure he won't be betrayed until he's had chance to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. And during this Passover meal, a very familiar occasion to to any Jew, Jesus says three significant things that totally change the meaning of what is going on in that meal. At this last Passover, the last supper that Jesus enjoys with his disciples, Jesus says three things that really bring new significance to what is happening in that meal. The first thing, Jesus says the Passover meal was never intended purely to look back to an event. That's quite surprising. The only way it had been celebrated for hundreds of, uh, really thousands of years, was that they were looking back to an event when God rescued his people from Israel. 
Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment. The Passover meal is waiting for fulfilment. What sort of things do you fulfill? You fulfill a promise. You fulfill potential. You fulfill your duty. All things that come after the thing given. Jesus says the Passover is waiting for its fulfilment. The Passover looks back, yes, to a day when the blood of the Lamb saved God's people from God's final act of judgment. But surely also, as well as looking back, the Passover is looking forward. Forward to a, a greater event even than the Exodus. Greater because this event will be the significant event. This will be the fulfilment of the Passover. And so we're looking for a time when the blood of the Lamb will save God's people from God's final act of judgment in an even greater way than it happened back there in Exodus. Perhaps a more precious lamb. Perhaps a more costly sacrifice. Perhaps a more severe final act of judgment. And Jesus hints at what that fulfilment, that act of fulfilment might be. It hints at it when he draws in his own sufferings to this fulfilment. Verse 15, he's saying, I want to eat this before I suffer. Verse 16, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfilment. Jesus says, my sufferings, are, you're able to use my sufferings to draw a line between my final eating of this supper and the fulfilment that's coming. And so Jesus implies there that his sufferings have at least got something to do with the fulfilment of the Passover meal. Now let's go on to see the second significant thing that Jesus says. He says, I am the one that the, the Passover sacrifice points to. Verse 19 this time. Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now Jesus takes the bread. That, that was a, an entirely ordinary part of the Passover meal. We read in Exodus 12 how unleavened bread, that is bread without yeast, had to be made and eaten at the meal. And there would have been several courses of bread and wine shared along with the lamb. So Jesus picks up the normal parts of the meal, but what he says adds entirely new significance to those parts that everybody would have been familiar with. The force of Jesus' words in verse 19 is not... The, the instruction that he gives. It's not do this in remembrance of me. That's not the force that the disciples would have felt in Jesus' words. They would have done this anyway. They would have eaten this bread anyway. The force is that Jesus tells them to do this in remembrance of him. Do it in remembrance of me. Don't remember the lamb thousands of years previous that was sacrificed. Remember me. I am the sacrifice. I am the one that dies. It is my body that will be broken for you. Jesus shows the disciples that he is the one who is going to give his life 
in order to save God's people from judgment. And when Jesus says, I'm giving my life, well, actually, he doesn't say give his life. When Jesus implies that his life will be given, this is different to the way that perhaps a mother gives her life almost every day for the sake of her children. She gives up her time and her energy and, and her ambitions in order to care for her children. But Jesus is not saying, I'm giving up my life in that sense. I'm not just really working hard for you. Jesus is saying, I'm literally, physically, very really giving up my life. I'm giving up my body. This bread is a token of my body given for you. For you. My body given for you. When the lamb was given for the people all those years ago, it was for the sake of them being saved from God's judgment. Jesus takes that very same imagery and now he applies it to himself. My body is given for you to rescue you from God's coming judgment. God's final act of judgment. My body is given for you. Jesus points here then to the fact that something far greater than the Passover is now coming. A greater act of judgment, a greater cost of sacrifice. And that's seen as well in Jesus' next saying in verse 20. The third significant thing that Jesus shows us is that this is the beginning of a new relationship between God and man. This is a beginning of a new identity between God and his people. Verse 20, Jesus says, in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A few words there that need uh, clarifying to help us understand. The word covenant, it's a, a word used a number of times in the Bible, describes a what you might call relational arrangement a relationship that God initiates between himself and mankind and this relationship that God initiates comes with certain stipulations certain requirements it comes with um, blessings for obedience and it comes with curses for disobedience now, when God was rescuing Israel out of Egypt all those years before, God led them out in order to then lead them into, up to Sinai and give them a covenant of their own, a special relationship that they would have with God. They would be God's people and God would be their God. But the New Testament describes that covenant as a covenant of death. That covenant promised so much. It promised security in the land. It promised the blessing of God. It promised upright, godly living in the nation. And yet it delivered so little. The problem was the people were unable to keep the covenant, despite their best efforts. Yes, we will do everything that God says, they said to this covenant. And yet even before God had finished writing out the terms of the covenant, they were at the bottom of the mountain, sacrificing, worshipping, singing and dancing to a golden calf that they'd made for themselves. They were simply unable to keep the terms of God's covenant. 
And so God says through his prophets many years later, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. You can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 31. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old one. You see, the problem with the old one, God says, is that there was disobedience that follows. God recognised the problem with the old covenant was that the people were unable to keep it. And so God says, the new covenant that I make will be better. It'll be better because it will not be conditioned on the obedience of the recipients. It won't be the, the obedience or disobedience of the people that determines whether this covenant is kept or broken. This covenant will be an entirely new kind of covenant. It'll be one that is full of grace. It'll be one that brings forgiveness. It will be one that brings power to stand against sin. Power to be able to obey. Power to be able to do what is right according to the covenant. Jesus says, my blood is the blood that seals, that pledges, that is the witness to that covenant. My blood is the blood that secures those promises of God for you. Just like blood was often spilt in the Old Testament to secure the covenant, Jesus says, my blood will be the blood that secures this new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup will be a reminder to you of the promises that God has made to you. And it will be a reminder of the sacrifice that I have made in order to secure that covenant for you. Jesus puts such significance into this final Passover meal that he shares with his disciples that it it's little wonder, really, that this meal becomes the pattern of all the other celebrations, the commemorations that the church follows afterwards. The church picks up on this meal and it becomes the way that Christians remember what Jesus has done for us. It's the Lord's Supper that we share together, sometimes called communion, sometimes called Eucharist or two other names. But what significance does the Lord's Supper have for us? What, what elements are we trying to tease out of this event in, that we read about in Luke 22? What are we trying to focus on? And especially, what priorities has Jesus given us by giving us this system, this, this meal to, uh, to remember him with? Well, above all else, the Lord's Supper is an act of remembrance. The Lord's Supper is, a, is designed to help us remember. To remember Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. After, uh, later on in the New Testament, we're told he, he says those words both after the bread and after the wine or the cup. Do these things in remembrance of me. Remember me by them. There's different ways that you can use things to remember Earlier this week, uh, a number of you will have stood out on your front doorsteps and given a round of applause for those key workers in the NHS. We've remembered their 
service and the work that they're doing. But the Lord's Supper is not like that type of remembrance. That act of remembrance, round of applause for the key workers, was for their benefit, to show them thanks. It was to give them praise and glory. Honour that they're due. When Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, it's about us being reminded, helping us to see. It's for our benefit, not someone else's. Some of you might have something on your sink at home to help you remember to wash your hands for 20 seconds, to sing happy birthday while you do it. But this act of remembering, the Lord's Supper, is not like that little device that you use to help you remember. That is to help you remember to keep a certain rule, to do the right thing. This act of remembrance is not in order to earn us merit or to make us good enough or to keep some rule like washing your hands for 20 seconds. This act of remembrance is to remind us, to focus our mind's eye upon Jesus himself. What specifically about Jesus does it help us remember then? You could list many, many things. I've chosen just three. First, and I would say most importantly, the Lord's Supper helps us remember the death of Jesus. When people from outside of Christianity who claim to respect Jesus or treat him as a man of significance, when they remember him, what do they go to? More often than not, they will go to his teachings. They will want to talk about his, his incredible uh, teachings in the Sermon of the Mount, for example. Who else has taught like this man? Who else has taught to love even your enemies? Who else has taught that it is better to turn the other cheek? Who else has taught that it is better to give rather than receive? Nobody has taught like Jesus. Many people, when they remember Jesus, want to go back to his teachings. Look at the, the incredible teachings that this man has given us. Ought we not to live by them? But if Jesus is just a man who's brought us some incredible teachings, it makes him no different to Moses or Muhammad or any other religious teacher. When Jesus asks us to remember him, he gives us these symbols that show us, remember my death. Remember my body, which was broken. Remember my blood, which was poured out. Because the more significant thing that Jesus has done for us is not to give us new teaching, is not to give us a clearer explanation of the Ten Commandments is not to it's not anything other than other than dying for us, giving his body for us. His life would be ineffectual were it not for his death. His work as a priest that he does now for us would be baseless if it were not for his death. On our behalf. His promises of hope in the future would be empty had he not secured our forgiveness by dying for us.
How do you remember Jesus? Sometimes it's easy to slip into the habit of thinking of him merely as lawgiver, perhaps teacher. The, the one who's given us such high standards that I just continue to struggle to meet up to. Perhaps some remember him as miracle worker. He's the one with the power. He's the one who's able to get me out of this tricky situation. And you look to him for that. Jesus says, remember me as the one who died on your behalf. Whether you're a Christian or not, for what reason do you look to Jesus? The primary reason is that we look to him because he has given his life as a sacrifice that pays the penalty for our sin. It's his death that is most importantly beneficial to us. It's his death that is the reason you can be rescued from the judgment of God. Remembering his death also helps us understand uh, our unity as a body of believers. Now this element is not so strong here in Luke chapter 22 but it's definitely something that's uh, explained quite a lot more when you read about the Lord's Supper in other parts of the New Testament. The Passover meal was a meal shared together in household units. It wasn't about you and your family, a very individualistic approach to, to just whoever's under your roof. Remember it was about how many people will share a lamb of this size. And so if there's too much lamb for your family, get your neighbours involved. If you've uh, not got enough lamb, then, then go, go and share with others. It's a, it's a communal meal. It's to bring people together. It's to recognise the identity of the nation of God. And Jesus picks up on that, that theme. He shares this meal with his disciples together. And the New Testament describes how both the bread and the wine become symbols of the unity of believers. And as you take those symbols of the bread and the wine, yes, you see the, the, the symbol of unity. There is one loaf that we share. There is one cup that we each share from. But also, again, you're reminded of Jesus' death. And as you share the Lord's Supper, reminded of Jesus' death on your behalf, then what space is there then for boasting? Who can say... I am more significant in this church than the next. Who can say I have a higher position here than any other? Because as you eat and as you drink, you're reminded I'm here only because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made on my behalf. And so taking the Lord's Supper just flattens out all opportunity for boasting. It levels the playing field. There's not one who's any more worthy than the other. Each one of us comes because of the death of Jesus Christ. And as you take the Lord's Supper, who can despair? Who can wonder, am I really good enough for God? Haven't I just blown it one too many times? Haven't I said those empty words of uh, trying to commit my life to Jesus again once too many times? Would he really accept me? Am I good enough for him? The Lord's Supper flattens out all space for despair. Because you're not there based on your performance. 
The new covenant that God had promised was never about the obedience of its recipients. It was secured, it was sealed in blood, in Jesus' blood, in order that it might in order that it might be a gracious gift to you who believe. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together, it removes all space for boasting. It removes all opportunity for despairing about our own weakness. And it shows us the unity that we share. Each and every one of us, fully and only dependent upon the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And thirdly, remembering Jesus in this way reminds us of his return. What is it that Jesus has saved us from? The Passover was to be saved from God's final act of judgment. The angel of death swooping down over Egypt and killing all the firstborn. The Passover saved from that. Jesus says the fulfilment, his death, is about saving us from a greater act of final judgment. One day God will judge not just Egypt. He will judge the whole world. He will judge you and me based on the things that we have done with our lives. Who will stand before God on that day? Even if you're measured against your own conscience, would you be able to stand? You won't be measured against your own conscience. You will be measured against God's holiness. There is no hope for anyone who seeks to stand on that last day based on their own goodness or their own performance. Remembering Jesus' death reminds us that there is a judgment coming. It reminds us that Jesus has saved us from that coming judgment. And so it has the effect of lifting our eyes forward to see that Jesus one day will return. One day he will return to bring us back to himself, to make good in, in the fullest sense all these promises that we have now in part. This freedom from sin, this relationship and fellowship with God, this unity as the body of believers. It's all begun now. But it will be fulfilled at a later date when Jesus returns. Jesus indicates the joy of that day when in, in Matthew's gospel, this very same passage, Jesus says, I'm not going to eat this meal again until I eat it with you in God's kingdom. On that day, we will share a meal, a feast, a banquet of joy laughter and love and celebration yes even of commemoration with Jesus our saviour the one who has died on our behalf my aim this evening was if you're a Christian are you still trusting in Jesus primarily for his sacrifice on your behalf? Or has your focus shifted? Have your eyes dropped to see some to, to search out some other benefit in him? To seek some other need? 
be reminded that the greatest need you have and the greatest gift that Jesus has given you is that he has died on your behalf. If you're not a Christian, do you know the, the blessing of this promise? Do you know what it is to have your conscience wiped clean, clear, free from guilt? Do you know what it is to know that you will not stand before God condemned, but forgiven? Because Jesus has taken the punishment on your behalf. If you don't, I would urge you to become a follower of Jesus. Trust him. Not just recognising that his teachings are good. But trusting that his death on your behalf is all that is needed. And the only thing that is available to save you from God's coming judgment. It's a real shame, isn't it, that we can't share the Lord's Supper together this evening. And I don't think we will be able to until we're able to meet back together as a gathering here in the church building. But I would like us to fix our eyes on Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. And so I've chosen as our last hymn, uh, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I Find a Place to Stand.